Hi there, and welcome to Art in Isolation, episode number eight. My name is Jen Korolenko, and I am your host for the show. I'm also the curator of education and public programs for the Forsyth Galleries, part of the University Art Galleries at Texas A&M University. We, of course, are the podcast that aims to connect Texas A&M students and the Bryan College Station community to one another through the arts. On today's show, we are going to talk to my friend Christopher Johnson. He is a writer, he is a performer, he is a poet, he is a very busy person. And we're going to discuss his career now and moving forward, along with some of the influences that have taken a big role in his life. Um, And you'll hear us reminisce a little bit about how we used to know each other um, 20 years ago in Trenton, New Jersey. So um, enjoy and stick around after the pod for a performance piece by Christopher. Enjoy. What's up, Jen? Hey, I try a different method since that does not appear to be working. And I played with the settings, so you should be much louder than before. Okay. All right. Um, oh, so what is this is that's not this, is it? What? What now? No, yeah, we're recording now. Yeah. Oh, okay, good, 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 good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me get back to where I, where I was saying um, you were started off with. Um, what do I do? Yes. And I was telling you that I'm kind of a, a writing mercenary, uh-huh. like a, a pen for hire. Um, basically, uh, people hire me like to do things. I, I have a record. I have a, I'm work, presently working on an article for the Motif, Providence, the Rhode Island Motif, about how the deaf community is dealing with the quarantine. Being that, being that the deaf community basically only has, has themselves to lean upon, and that being that they are no longer around each other, that they, they, are, they are very much isolated. And a lot of people in um, Rhode Island, in the Providence area, they, uh, the deaf people live with families who don't sign. So, like, maybe a parent might sign, but, like, their brothers and sisters won't sign because they're too young. Um, their cousins, their neighbors don't sign because they just don't. So they're, so they're very isolated. So I'm writing an article with that. I also do promotions for videos. Like I, I did a, I did a, a promotion for a pharmaceutical company, which led me to the last promotion that I just wrapped up, which was on for a graduation for a college. And now I'm presently wrapping up a, a promotion for the TEDx Providence people. And I also write, I do uh, copy, copywriting for uh, web designs and, and find web content for people. So when people need web content um, and they want it written in a way that doesn't sound corporate, uh, they come to me because I'm more artistic with it, and I write, I write uh, like more, not poetry, but I play with the words a little so it doesn't sound so, you know, commercial. So so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't sound so commercial. Mainly, my my passion is to write the words for plays and poetry, and and uh, as an artist activist. So, like uh, my first play that I wrote, or not my first play, but my first play that was actually put on its feet was a play about police brutality. And that's the play that won the, um, the Rhode Island State Council of the Arts um, Fellowship, Playwriting Fellowship. It was a finalist in the McCall Johnson Fellowship. Um, and so my present play that I'm working on is talking about the new lexicon racism, even though a lot of people, um, academics are now fighting back and forth about should we change the the, the, the language around race and racism, or should we just leave it as it is, even though we know for a fact that racism is more structural and more systemic and more institutional than it is just a, a malicious act of somebody saying, you know, a, a, a word of hatred. 
um, it's more it's more about um, how things are designed to benefit more people of a certain color as as opposed to not. So I'm writing a play around that right now because, of course, coming from the um, um, the, the side of being of the oppression, I believe that we should be focusing more on the systemic and the institutional and the structural forms of racism than um, the prejudice that people have for not liking other people because of skin color. So anyway, that's what I do. That's that's what I who I am. I'm a writer, performer, director, father mostly trying to pay the bills, do whatever I can with a pen to pay the bills. You're a busy, busy man, as it tends to be with people in the arts having to wear. I just talked to a friend of mine who also does copywriting, but also is an opera singer and also has two toddlers. And also, yeah, um, yeah when, when you're in the arts, when you're in the arts, it's like, this is why, this is why every artist, if, if, if an artist never waited tables, I doubt, I have to question their ability of being an artist. When you're waiting tables, you have to like balance all of those stuff on the trays. And do oh, that. yeah. That's, that's what being an artist is. And being an artist is putting, putting the meals on the tray, all five meals on the tray, putting drinks on the tray, and then walking them to their tables and remembering what table they get dropped off at and remembering who gets what drink. You know, and that's what being an artist is. And, and that's why I question the people, I've never waited tables in my life. Oh, well, um, I don't, I question your ability to create art. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I question, I question their ability to eat out also. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. That's important. Oof. Anyway, yeah, and then we're doing now, I don't know if you, you've uh, checked it out, but um, there's a whole page on Facebook um, called No Karen, and it's all about um, the, the whole Karen thing came from the service industry. It had nothing to do with race. It came from waiters and bartenders. Having to deal with annoying people. Yeah, Karen is the person who always wants to see the manager. Yeah. So that's where the Karen thing came from. And the fact that the, they're saying Karen is racist is so funny because it's like race had nothing to do with it. No, anyway. no, no, it doesn't have anything to do with it. It, it is more the can I talk to your manager kind of person. Yeah, I, I want to see the manager. Yeah, my grandma was one of those people. I used to hide in stores. <laughs> well, so am I. Unfortunately, I have a little Karen in me. Uh, well, I mean, I think everybody's got a little bit of Karen in them. Like it happens. Just like well, no one's perfect. It's the same. It's the same way that everybody, you know, everybody participates in um, having unconscious bias and oh yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's the same kind of same a similar idea. Well, the thing is, if you if you order your burger rare, and they and they bring it back medium, okay, I can understand. You don't need to see the manager. You you know you can just send it back. Yeah. If you order your burger rare, and they send it back well done, and they did it twice in a row, now you need to see the manager. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. You, you know now now it's like yo, this, this is the second time. I, you know I just sent my burger back and. and it's rare, yeah. But anyway, and yeah. then you know, as the ser- you know, as the server, you got to go back in the kitchen and be like, "Come on, guys, you're killing me." You know, you're, you're killing me. And and you better hope you don't have like a a, a crappy boss who's gonna say, "Well, that that's coming out of your paycheck." Uh. I, had, I had one of those. I used to work for a restaurant here in Providence, and and he, and if he got the orders wrong, the freaking owner would literally take it out of our paycheck. That's terrible. That's unconscionable. You are uh, a man of many, many talents. And um, now that we're all living in quarantine-ish, I mean, it depends on where you are in the country. You are in the Northeast, so things are still a little bit, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we're, we're, we're crazy here. Um, they, we, 
we're, we're, lift, we're lifting restrictions, but the only people that are, um, well, there's only two types of people that are, that are for this whole lifting restrictions thing. Um, the people who couldn't get unemployment, mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason, those, those are the, the, so they, they have to go back to work. Like they need to go back to work. Right. They don't, um, we don't really have people with, wanting haircuts here. Um, and the other type of people that um that want that are looking for it are the people who own businesses and don't want to pay the unemployment. So that's where we're at right now. We're we're at pay, people who want to pay the unemployment don't want to pay the unemployment and the people who can't get unemployment. Those are the only people that want to go back. Like my daughter, my daughter got called back to work and she was refused unemployment because she's 17 and she's only been working two months. Oh. And they, they, so they refused her unemployment, but she works at a mall. Yeah. So it's, there's so, no way. It's like no fault of her own that she couldn't go to work. So the so they're open. They're opening up the mall on the 18th. Uh, the, the parts of the mall is open up now. Like Macy's is open. Like the big stores is open. But the um, but but the little stores are not yet. They're they're gonna fully open up the mall on the 18th. And they want my daughter to go back to work. And I told her she's she's crazy. I said no, you're not going back to work. You might as well. You know she's she's in college. She's in high school and college. So I was like, you might as well just pick up another freaking college course and I'll pay for it. But right. You're not going back, but you're not going back to work. And, and if I have to, if I have to, I'll give her an allowance. I mean, she hasn't had an allowance since she was, I don't know, 11 or 12. But but if I have to, I'll, I'll put her on a, a, an allowance and give her freaking $100 a week. Because I know she's 17. She can't be making no more than, what, uh, you know, minimum no, wage. No, in, in retail, no. I've, I've worked retail and weighted tables. So, yeah, it's not. Yeah. The same thing that I made work in retail like 15 years ago, 20 years ago is like it's maybe a dollar more an hour than it was then. Yeah, no. Which I, is I, ridiculous. I, I, That's a whole nother I, thing. I'll give her $100 a week. And because uh, basically I'm like after taxes, you're probably making $128 a week. Something so like I'll that. I'll give you a hundred and we'll call it even. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I really could. That's the thing is people are concerned about the relatives going back. I know my dad is over 60 and works in a grocery store in Pennsylvania. He lives in New Jersey and works in Pennsylvania. And my mom is, I mean, she's been, you know, she's immunocompromised and, um, yeah. So she is like disinfecting the house after him every day when he gets home. She has to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he has to he has to wear a mask all day and all that stuff. So I get that there are a lot of concerns. The university where I work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so how has your career changed? Is your 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 career like trajectory has it changed at all since we've all had to like adapt in the past? Oh my god, like eight eight or nine weeks now. A lot. My career trajectory has changed a lot. My play was doing so well people were paying me to read my play um the play about about um racism mm-hmm. um because as opposed to writing a play i don't write normal plays i i, I focus more on, on docu theater um docu theater is it's not new it's been around for years but it never really picked up it's where you take real life stories real life things there's um it's more linear it doesn't circle back around to anything there's no there's no real storyline or plot it's just stories uh like in this case, it's a solo performance, so it'll be like Whoopi Goldberg's um, one person, one person performance, or John Leguizamo's. I said his name wrong. Leguizamo. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't want him to. I don't want him to chase me down if he can be like, you said my name wrong on a podcast. <laughs> I mean, uh, side note: his kid almost hit me on a bike in New York once. That was funny, but <laughs> he was a very nice man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know what? He's he's probably one of he's one of my most favorite people on the face of the planet, and I don't know much about him. I just know more, enough about him to know um, that 
as an actor in the roles that he chooses, he's dope. He's dope. He's he, he chooses great roles um, that are all across the board from from Romeo and Juliet to to uh, Wang Fu. Yeah, yeah. Chichi exactly. Rodriguez. <laughs> exactly. 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 He's he's, he's um, dynamic and presence and uh, everything. And you can't be a you can't be a I, I hate to use this language. You can't be a dick of a person if you're choosing roles like that. No, that's true. You have to at least be like a relatively open-minded yeah. person yeah. to be like, I want to play everyone's experience. Or and, and, yeah. And when I saw um, when I saw Latino histories for dummies, I was I was actually going. I was in the process of writing. I had a big whiteboard out. I was staying at a friend's house over in the in another side of uh, the state, um, just so that I can get some space from from the regular world. And I had a whiteboard, and I'm writing down what I wanted to, you know, I was thinking about Rick and Morty, um, <laughs> how um, Rick and Morty is supposed to be the perfect style of writing. You have, you know, you have the basic eight sections that they move through for story for storytelling, and, and they never deviate from those basic eight stories. Uh, 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 those basic eight tropes. Trope? Yeah, tropes. Are they? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like they start off they start off with an unfixable problem. Then they you know then they go on the mission to fix the problem. Then it gets even worse. And then uh, they find somebody who comes and helps them to fix the problem, um, like a, a guardian angel or whatever, whatever. Then they fix the you know they 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 fix the problem. And it, but it's like it's like eight basic freaking steps that they go through, and 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 they do it for every show. So I was sitting there thinking about how I can write my play like that. Mm-hmm. And and the person who I was staying with at the time threw on John Leg- Leguizamo's Latino History for Dummies, and I stopped what I was doing and I sat down and watched it, and I realized this is what I needed to do. And um, if I could take the docu theater, the docu theater format where I'm I'm adding in real story, real video, real life stuff that's really happening, just like he did with his, and then I and I and I add in the education aspect of it, like it's a workshop from the stage. You know, like like I'm actually teaching from the stage. So no matter, um, so I don't have to give a workshop. At, you know, normally with poets, what, what I've noticed is that when colleges hire me, I have to do the um, performance and then I have to do the uh, the workshop after the performance. Yeah. With this format, I do the workshop from the stage and I don't have to do the workshop after the fact. Working you know, smarter, not harder. <laughs> right. Right. I just give the workshop from the stage. It is a performance. It is a definite performance. But I'm doing the workshop from the stage as the performance. And then I don't have to, you know, then then it's like, it's like, what what do you want? You got questions? Okay, we'll have a talk back. And now that we have a talk back, I never have to walk into a classroom and deal with 30 students um, oddly um, by themselves. Yeah. I could, you know, I could deal with everybody unless they pay me more. <laughs> Well, yeah, teaching is definitely, I feel like, I mean, all teachers should be paid more, for sure. Well, if we've learned anything about the teaching profession during uh, quarantine is that teachers are undervalued. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's that's really funny. And then people started posting that because um, I used to, I, I should probably don't know this. I did for a while. Yeah. I taught, um, I taught like K-12 school art. And I, I taught, my last teaching job was at um, a second year turnaround school in Trenton. And I taught fourth through eighth grade art. It was one of those schools where the kids had block scheduling and they didn't have recess. 
So by the time they got to Whoa. me once a week, they were wild. Like, yeah. <laughs> woo! It was an experience. Like I, it, it, it I bet. yeah. You have no idea. Like the Actually, when I kids, do. well, oh no, you. I mean, like when kids complain about when parents complain, like, oh, I don't understand. Like teachers get summers off and do all this. It's like, why, why, why do they need raises? What, 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 what do you, why do they complain about, but that they have to spend money on student on, on utensils and pencils and books and pads and stuff for kids. That's their job. And now they're doing it and they're, and they're on freaking line. They're on. Oh my God. I, I have a, I have a friend who is a teacher. She is a teacher and she's on Facebook complaining about teaching her own kids. Oh yeah. Yeah, you're like, oh, your little angel's not an angel, huh? <laughs> Didn't believe me. <laughs> so, so I don't know if you noticed about me, but I, I was, I started teaching when I was in Trenton. Oh, did you? Yeah, I was not teaching before that. I was, you know, I was waiting tables at the Urban Word. Yeah. Um, you know, I was doing poetry. Um, yeah. But the, I forgot the name of the theater that was in Trenton. But they walked up to me one day, you know, after the poetry slam, they came in. Uh, for lunch and, and so, you know and they said oh we saw you at the poetry slam last night you're awesome we think that you can teach and i'm like and i'm like oh so you think i can teach oh wow <laughs> i was like never taught a class never stood in front of a class with the kids in my life you know i'm waiting tables and doing poetry yeah i don't another thing is when i moved to trenton when i first moved to trenton i was sleeping in a park bench and, and rolling pot was the one that gave me the job to give me the money that i can get an apartment he really he was he I said okay just for clarification of a recording he said roland pot <laughs> and that's the actual name of a person that's roland pot he was the owner of the of the urban, of the word. urban word which is where i met christopher 20 plus <laughs> years ago <laughs> long time ago okay a long time ago we'll say a long time ago okay but yeah, but yeah roland pot um i was sleeping on the park bench and I walked into the poetry slam. That's when I met freaking um the chicken guy, the guy holding the rubber chicken. Oh, 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 rubber our, chicken our guy. Our <sighs> friend who who hosted the freaking um, what's his name? Uh, Bob Salad. Bob Salad. Yeah. Bob Salad used to freaking bring a rubber chicken to the poetry slam. I don't know why. <laughs> he was the, he's a curious character. Don't know what that was about, but yeah, he did. So anyway, um, that's when I met Bob Salad, and um, and then I won the slam that night. And uh, and then Roland, um, Roland was me and Roland started talking, and I told him that I um, that I didn't I needed a job, and he said he'd hire me, and, he, and so if I show up the next day um, for lunch, he'd hire me. I took my slam winnings, I think it was like thirty bucks. I took my slam winnings, and I went to the Salvation Army and bought black pants, white t-shirt or white shirt, um, and shoes. Um, showed up like an hour early for the for the shift to wait tables, washed up in the bathroom and started waiting tables. And that's, that was like, the, that was actually like the beginning of my life. Um, wow. Right, right, right there was like, of course I was doing poetry when I was in Newark and everything like that. But that right there is actually what set me on the path of being who I am right now. That's amazing. I did not know that. Yeah. It's not something I told a lot of people. Well, now all 100 of my listeners might maybe know. <laughs> well, you know, after after like after like you get so far in your career that you're like, oh wow, that actually did happen. You know, it's like it's like such it's just a distant memory. It's like such a distant memory. Oh yeah. It's almost it's almost as if I'm just telling a fairy tale. You know, this is a fairy tale. But no, but it did actually happen. That that was actually how it went down. I, I was sleeping on the park bench, 
and won the poetry slam and Roland gave me a job and I took the poetry slam winnings and yeah, that's actually how it happened. Wow. That's really cool. And so, okay, sorry, we, we got off topic. Oh, we'll, um, yeah. We'll <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we're like how, yeah, teaching and also like how your, how things have changed for you, like how your career path has changed. Well, since COVID, uh, because I can't do the play, like the play was really doing good. People were paying me to come out and read the play because I, I put so much time into it. It was like, uh, I, this is how much time I put into it. Brett Axel, who I actually met at the Urban Word in Trenton. I remember um, him, Brett, yes. Brett Axel hit me up um, last year and asked me to write a book because he is the editor at, uh, at some publishing company in Buffalo, New York. And so I didn't have anything together to write, um, to, to submit for a book. But then I submitted my play. And he came back to me and said, um, plays don't sell. But what we want is we want all of those definitions of the new, uh, all of these new, t the terms like microaggression, the terms like institutional racism, um, the term, you know, he wanted all of these terms that are, that are found nowhere. There's no one collective place that these terms are found. He wanted all of the terms from the play put into a dictionary on racism and they would sell that. And so, uh, and so he just hit me up again and was like, we're still waiting. And I'm like, Dude, I really don't want my name on a dictionary. It's like Webster. Webster goes. Webster. Webster is going through history um, uh, as as um, the guy who, who redefined American language um, because of the Oxford. You know, it was Oxford and Webster. But then when we start digging into Webster's past, we find out that Webster was a white supremacist who only believed that white men of privilege deserved to have command of the English language. And when you read that. You know, do I want somebody digging through Christopher Johnson's past, you know, finding out whatever I've done in the past, because I've done a lot of stuff. But, I, you know, I just, you know, and I thought about it, I was like, do I really want my name, you know, on like the dictionary of racism? Because then, cause then somebody's going to be like, well, Christopher Johnson at one point in his life really uh, was following the yeah, world. You don't want to you know, open that, you know, open that can of worms. I was like, yo, I was 19 when I was listening to Louis Farrakhan. Could you, can we, like, leave that alone? <laughs> I was like, can we just leave that alone? But uh, anyway, um, yeah, I don't want that can of worms. But now because of COVID, it's actually a reality. I actually put it together. It's actually done. And it's actually on its way to um, the physical man. Even though I, I had to email it to them so that they can get a read on it, they also had needed, they still needed a physical manuscript because they want to do a guy uh, excuse my language uh, no you're good i can beep you okay <laughs> okay all right good because they wanted to do a um uh copyright and they have you know they want publishing rights and i'm just like okay fine i don't care you can have publishing rights so for whatever reason they wanted a physical copy of it so i sent it to them and, and now the, the physical copy is on the way so well, that happened yeah um, um also um with the graduations of the colleges happening, the video, uh, I'm doing a lot of uh, video um, writing for videos, writing for these graduations. Um, I'm doing a lot of cancellation videos, like the 10 people, like I was saying earlier, the 10 people call, um, hit me up to do a, write a video for them. They just wanted a poem. They wanted a nice poem about, about restructuring and coming back better. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote that. Yeah. So, so my, my, my whole performance life, crashed um my whole public life being on stage reading in front of people crashed but my my digital life my e-life you know if we could say my virtual life it took on took on a new uh, a new a new uh, posture in my in, in in me being 
Well, that I mean, it's great that you're able to adapt because I think that's what people are having the hardest time with. Or, yeah, I mean, because people don't like change, right? Like yeah. <laughs> inherently, people are change adverse. So the fact that we basically like woke up one morning and it's like your job, your career, your life, everything is completely, it's completely different or altered in some way. So you need to adapt or lose your source of income. So you better make a decision. That would, I mean, it, the same thing happened in my field. Well, the good part about being, uh, about creatives, about creatives in general, is that there was really no format to how we do things. If the stock market crash tomorrow, it really wouldn't change anything for most creative types because we create our own funding, our own monies, our own life. We create our own lives. You know, we create how we, how we do things. So, so like it would change a lot. I mean, because then our benefactors and the people who come out and support us and the people who give us money, um, we, we wouldn't, they wouldn't have the money to give, to give us anymore, but it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't change too much because like, for instance, um, there was a time when I really, you, you know, like me and Post Midnight, back in the day, me and Post Midnight would um, leave Trenton and catch the train from Trenton to uh, Newark and then catch the train from the, uh, the past from Newark to 33rd Street or whatever, and then catch the A to B to C to Brooklyn and just so that we can be in Brooklyn. This was a, a, a Friday night ritual that me and Post did. A lot of people didn't know that that's what we were doing. It was like, but that's, that's a journey. It was a journey, but it was worth it. What what would happen? Oh, and Jackie, um, Jackie, who used to wait tables with us, she used to become with us too. But um, what 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 happened was, I wouldn't have any money, and even if I had money, it didn't change the the process. And the process was once we hopped on the train, um, the pop train, we would start doing poetry on the train, and instead of begging people for money, we would just say, "Hey, we're doing poetry. If you um if you would like to support." You know, what we're doing, if you like what you hear, you can buy our CDs or you could just donate to the cause. And, you know, and we would do that on the, on a, on the path train, on the AWC, if we were going to Brooklyn, on, um, uh, if we were going to the Lower East Side. I forgot what we would take to the Lower East Side. But, you know, whatever we was doing, we would, we would, we would create our funding for the night. We would create our, our, our door, you know, because sometimes it was $15 to get in the door. We would create our train fare to get home if, if Post wasn't driving. Um, and, and, and a lot of the times, um, I, I used to talk him out of driving. The only time we would drive is if, we were, if it was other people with us, like, you know, whoever was coming with us. But most of the times I talk him out of driving. And that was our way of doing it. So, like, as a creative, you find ways no matter what. And, and, and I think that with COVID, when, when this hit, a lot of the people who I know who are creators, we all took to the internet, we all took to Facebook, we all took to Twitter and Instagram, and we started doing videos of us performing, and people started paying us via um, Venmo, uh, Cash App, and PayPal. Um, a lot of my people who were creators that were, who creates jewelry out of beads, her sales went up, you know, um, because impulse buying, for some reason, COVID started a lot of impulse buying, you know? <laughs> <laughs> People are sitting at home with nothing to do. I'm going to buy this necklace made out of beads, you know, um, and, and I got nowhere to wear it to, but I just want to have it. Um, so, yeah, I think that the, the creatives uh, and, and, and the biggest thing, you know, I was I was asking people, well, I was like, do y'all really want to go back to the way things were before? No, because because we weren't really enjoying life. Right. You know, it, it was like I remember the whole reason I stopped working. The whole reason I decided to um, change the direction of my life to being a creative 
is because I was, even as a bartender, I was making 400, you know, I've worked three nights a week, four, four nights a week, making $400 a night, you know, um, when I was working in Boston. But I was spending two, $300 freaking drinking at bars, hanging out with friends, you know, whenever I, would, well, I wasn't working. And, and it was because I was miserable. It was because I was miserable. And then you, and then you look at the people who uh, work in offices. And they're making all of this money. And here it is, you work in this office, you make all of this money, um, and you spend, you have this beautiful home, and you spend two days a week in your house. You come yeah. home to this beautiful freaking place, and you spend more time in the office than you do in your own home. Yeah, I mean, I even feel that to a degree. I mean, because I went kind of the the safe the safe route, I mean, compared to... My my parents are thrilled because I have a pension since I work for a university. Like to get to graduate with a, with a couple of art degrees and end up with a pension. Like they're like, we won the kid lottery, yay, <laughs> <laughs> good for you. Yeah, but I was still working an eight eight to five job and in a little office five days a week. You know, half hour there, half hour back. So that's like ten hours of your day every day that you're spending in the car sitting in a little windowless room and not I'm grateful. I kind of miss my windowless room a little bit just because I don't live alone. <laughs> right, right, right. But lucky you, I live with a 17 year old kid. Oh yeah. I, well, I live, I live with my husband, but he, since COVID hit, he's a chef. So, and he's a catering chef. So he obviously wasn't catering events and ended up having to go work for his mother who has a, She's a general contractor, so he's doing construction work in North Texas during the week. Oh. Yeah, so he's how come he how come he didn't how come he didn't be creative and, and cater? Well, here in Providence, here in Providence, people were well they well they have they, they, we actually have kitchens that people can go work in. Yeah, because you have you have to have um like a commercial you have have, kitchen. You have to have a commercial kitchen. So so here there's a big deal that people freak uh, somebody decided to create commercial kitchens. I think it started in New York. And so where anybody can lease out the commercial kitchen for a day or whatever, and then they can do it. So here people were literally the, the, the caterers and people literally went and were leasing out the commercial kitchens. They only had a staff of like two and then they would go and deliver these freaking meals to people. Yeah. Yeah. He thought about doing that for a while, but I think the immediate, the immediate, the immediate thing was his mom thought if you come here now, you could immediately start getting a paycheck. So he's been, he's been yeah, so he's been going, he leaves like Sunday or Monday and then comes back like late Friday night because it's a four and a half hour drive because Texas is too big for its own good. I know Texas. Too damn big. <laughs> so, Trust me, I know Texas. I, I used to fall asleep. I used to drive from Fort Hood to Port Arthur and fall asleep on a road somewhere around Houston. Right, And one day I fell asleep and spun out in a freaking cotton field. Oh my so goodness. I know, I know Texas. Texas is. I know Texas. <laughs> It is an experience. It's a whole nother country. <laughs> it is Texas. You know, when people when people be talking when, when people talk to me about Texas and 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 that's my whole thing right there. I'd be like, well, if you really want to talk about Texas, are you talking about Austin? Or are you talking about the country of Texas? because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are two different places for sure. And yeah. Like, oh, well, I was in Austin. I was like, well, you don't know Texas. <laughs> like you was in Austin. You was not in Texas. Trust no, me, that's you know? totally true. When I first moved here, I gave a lecture at a local college. And um, I guess I didn't mention that I was from New Jersey. But immediately, one of the one questions opened up at the end of the talk. Somebody immediately was like, you're from Austin, right? <laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> no, Northeast. But I mean, yeah, Austin is not Texas. I mean, it's beautiful. I love Austin. I love Austin. I love Texas. Yeah, Texas. me too. Yeah. Good. Smells like brisket. 
good. It's a good state. Fun fact: I have a. I actually have a court order never to return to the state of Texas. Why? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> because when I was younger, I, I did some things. You oh. know, I, I, and and when I left Texas, they gave me a court order saying that I was not to return. Dang! You're like an, a real outlaw. Oh, you, you know what though? If you can't be an outlaw in Texas, where the hell can you be an outlaw? I don't know, man. I mean, at a state where the best food is served at a gas station, like oh, the best food is served on the side of the road out of somebody's <laughs> freaking out of uh, out of uh, the the refrigerator that they emptied out and made into a freaking smoker. <laughs> yeah, it is like it's a very di. I guess like it's a very DIY kind of. I mean, I can see why people say it's a different. It's a different country. Like, I miss it when I leave. It's too hot. I'll give you that. I, I, I miss Texas. Oh, I miss Texas. And every time, and it, even though I wasn't supposed to go back, we had two national poetry slams in Austin. And um, and, and so I went back. And the first thing you do when, when I hit Texas is I take off my shirt and let that sun hit me. Um, that's, that's the first thing I do. It is I, intense. You, you get there in August and, um, uh, you know, July, August. Um, and then everybody's like, oh, it's too hot. I'm like, I'm outside. I got my shirt off. I got I got my sneakers on and shorts on, no socks, and I'm running down the street like. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought I was gonna pass out the first time I experienced real Texas sun, like when we first moved here, because I am very, I am very, very, I'm a very, I'm a very white lady, and uh, and I don't go no. in the sun. No, I'm no, super white. Sir. Super no, white. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, us melanin impaired who tend to, um, uh, I just was out at like a farmer, I was like a farmer, a farmer's market or something. And this was before I was even married to my husband. And I was like, I think I got to go. He's like, why? And I was wow. like, I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it was wow. like my first 90 degree direct sunlight day in Texas. And the sun just seems hotter here. Yeah, it is. It's, it's uh, hotter. I, I don't. I don't know if it's because you're closer to the equator than, than New Jersey. I don't know if it's because there's like um, a lack of trees, and, and, and it's like Texas is built for freaking lizards. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> I was just watching a lizard on my back porch. <laughs> yes, Texas is built for lizards. Like literally, it's built for freaking lizards. Yeah. And I don't know why it's hotter there, but it, it really is just hotter in Texas. It's ridiculous. But I will, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Um, take up the time talking about Texas because oh, yeah. it, it is it is one of my loves is Texas. But I, like I said, I, I was just I just left a friend's house um who I was interviewing for that I was saying about the um the doing the interview for the magazine about uh, the deaf community being disconnected and me and her were talking about our favorite places in the world. Did you did I I'm sitting here looking at these photos. I have these photos. I'm surrounding myself with these photos. Um one of the photos is a um a slave um, a depot where the slaves would stop um, before they would go to South America in Havana, in Havana, Cuba. Mm-hmm. Another photo is I can't remember his name. The the the, the Cuban hero uh, who. Oh, uh, Castro. No, 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 Castro. the good one. The good one. The good one. The good one. <laughs> the good one, not the bad one. The the one we like. The one oh. we like. Not the, the, the Jose. Oh, oh 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 yeah yeah yeah. yeah. But not Jose Guevara. Jose Guevara was the freaking poet laureate of Trenton, uh, of of Massachusetts, who we met in Trenton. But no, what is his name? Uh, Jose. Uh, hold on, hold on. I got his, I got his book right here. Guerrero. That's that's his name. I got his book. You know what? But anyway, Che is it so, Che? It's like C H E. Yeah. Yeah. It's Che. Mm-hmm. So I got a picture of Che. Um. Uh. On a. I think it's a three three dollar bill, three dollar peso, and then I got a picture um a black and white. 
of, of the cars, of uh, all of the cars uh, that because they were like 67 Chevys and freaking uh, Corvettes and uh, these old school cars. I went to freaking Cuba because Cuba put together a festival for the African diaspora where they got all of the poets. Um, they got poets from everywhere where slaves had touched down. They got, uh, they got, um, so anywhere where there were slaves touched down, they went and got um, poets of color, people, um, they got uh, black and, and Latino poets, and they brought them all to Cuba. And that's how I got to Cuba. Is that, isn't that amazing? Like they, that, that somebody decided in, in speaking Havana, in Havana, speaking Cuba, they said, where have, where, every place that, where there were slaves, every place that the colonial, the colonials traded slaves, we should get poets from all of these places and bring them to Cuba and just have a speaker. And it was one of the most, do you know, that the, 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 the freaking, um, the thing that poets do when we all get together, get in a circle and just start throwing, throw our bags in the middle of the circle and then start doing poems. The first time I did that, I did that at nationals in Seattle in 2000. We did that in a freaking Havana and it blew my mind that this is like a cultural poet thing. Yeah. Like, you know, po poets all around the world. We throw our bags in the middle of a freaking, we make a circle, throw our bags off, or take our knapsacks off, throw it in the middle of the circle, and just start spitting poems in the circle. But for the fact that everybody around the world does that, I feel like I'm part of a larger family. I feel like my family just grew, you know, yeah. when I was in Havana. And when I was in Havana, I thought my family was just poets here. But then in Havana, Cuba, when that happened, Oh my God! That my chest opened up. I was like, "These are my people." I don't, I don't even I don't even understand half of what this this person saying. Cause this person, I don't even understand what that person saying. But these are my people. It was so dope. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what is what's what do things look like moving forward for you? Moving forward, my daughter graduates high school next year. But mm -hmm. a, a really good friend of mine wants to sell my play to Netflix the same way that um. Uh, John Leguizamo's play was on Netflix. Yes, he wants to he wants to sell my play to Netflix. I actually want to tour it in colleges first. I want the colleges to open up simply so that I can tour it in colleges and tour it in schools. If everything works out well, this play is going to take me to my retirement. It's going to buy me my little boat that I'm going to float around the freaking um, the Caribbean in. If, if that if that happens, if not. If not, then I'll adopt and overcome because it looks like people are my skills as a, a copywriter. Um, and, and as a writing these 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 uh, commercials and stuff for people, it looks like that those skills are going to be very useful as well. Yeah. And maybe and maybe I should like consider making myself a business now, so that when so that if this doesn't happen, instead of being a freelance where people are freelance hiring me, I'll actually have a um, a business code. And because the idea that that you know that people are are used to the same language. Um, we turn on your TV and all of these commercials on the thing. It's like it's like somebody literally put all of the COVID commercials together, put it on Facebook, and they said, "Did you notice how all of the COVID commercials sound the same?" And then the language is all the same in these difficult times, in these difficult uncertain times, in these yes, yeah, they they all and then different. the new normal. When we return yes. to the new normal, we'll be there for you. Yeah, and with, the, with, the, with the piano in the background. <laughs> it was kind of all intense piano in the background. And so I, I think that um, my skills in, in this, and where we're going is going to be valuable, more than valuable, you know, because the same people have been writing the same for years. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and it's, like what, um, it's, not, it's like what Charles Bukowski said. He said it's not that, it's not that they're bad. It's just that they're not good. 
Yeah, it's just like they're boring. And then also that they're not really saying what they mean. And that was Bukowski. That's a weird thing I've been doing during quarantine is revisiting Bukowski's novels. How could uh, you not? Yeah, like reading them. Like I just read Women in one day a couple like a couple weeks ago. And and yeah, and then that was the, the thing that he says. And do you ever see that documentary Poetry in Motion? Yes, I did. Yeah. So he's like sort of the host of that. And he's like, I just don't understand, like, why, why people can't just write a sentence and say what they mean. Like, the dog right. walked down the street. Like, why does it need to be yeah. this whole production? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I feel like, I feel like, um, I feel like as, the, uh, as my popularity and, and making these, these pieces grows, um, because, because, again, people don't want, People don't want to sound like, even though even though we we know like eighty percent of the population does, they don't care. They they cut on their TV, they zone out, and if everything is the same and everything is good, they go with it. But then you have those people who um, are actually paying attention, and 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 those are the people who are looking for my work because they want a line of poetry in a commercial. They want they want to hear a commercial, and then they want to hear a line of poetry in a commercial to to, to set that commercial apart from everything else. Yeah, and I think and I think that um, you know going forward in the future, if the playwriting and the activism doesn't work, which I actually, sadly, 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 if, if we learned anything um, in the last week, quarantine, that quarantine does not stop racism and does not stop black people from dying at the hands of white people. Yeah. Um, so so sadly, we've learned that as well. So if if this doesn't work. In that way, where my voice can be useful and heard, you know, in play, in the arena of plays and arena of art, then I can make a living at least writing commercials and pay for my daughter's college and and buy a boat and retire in um, Belize and Havana and Florida, like just bounce back between those three. Well, I hope you get to do that for sure. What else am I doing? All of these grants that I never had time to work on, um, re, um, updating my CV. You know, um, updating my resume, all of these things. This is the perfect time to do all of those things that you don't have time to do in normal life because you're too busy doing normal life. So we only have one more question to cover. And the one more question to cover is, can you tell me about, I already know the answer because technical difficulties, but can you tell me about a piece of art or music that has really like affected you as a human and inspired you? Oh, yeah, that question. Yeah, the big one. Um. Oh my God! So, and 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 now that this is like the second time you're asking me, here's the thing: hip hop, because of the language and the and the and the, and the um diversity in the language, um the intricacy and in, uh, the poetry of hip hop, and you know, and people there's poetry, hip hop, you know, but yes, yes, there's poetry and hip hop and, and it's great because if you you know what people don't know is uh Tupac started writing his first songs he wrote his first songs in sonic form um and then he would like break the sonic form so that he, he you know to to go with the the bar count because sonics don't necessarily um 16 bars doesn't necessarily fit with a b a b c d c d e f you yeah. know so 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 um Tupac originally started writing in sonic form so that you like if you take Gear Mama like the like it's it's sonic it's a sonnet up until he had to break it and then come back to the next sonnet. So hip hop, just in general, the has influenced me because it's, it went from this, it went from this, you know, very basic form of rhyme schemes, um, and and, and uh, was staccato. You know, it went from very basic forms of rhyme schemes and schemes of staccato 
to a more fluid, fluid, the, the, the fluid, the fluidity of the language. Um, it's like, oh my God. So let me see if I can ask you where. Run DMC, two years ago, a friend of mine asked me to say an MC rhyme. So I said, this rhyme I'm about to say, the rhyme was death and it went this way. You know, look from this staccato, AB, AB, uh, you know, um, Reinstein, uh, Black Star. I'm here seated at the helm. Um, I'm here seated at the helm. Oh, wait, I can't even remember it. <laughs> Black Thought is one of the most freaking intricate rhyme scheme of the cats you ever going to freaking listen to. Black Thought's rhymes, Black Thought's words are jazz. There's no way around his, his words of jazz, like yeah. his words of music. But, but let me see if I can think of another one. Abomatomically. Socrates' philosophies and hypotheses can't define how I'll be dropping these mockeries, lyrically perform on robberies. So you see how the, the rhyme scheme went from ABAB to, to like, you know, um, a bomb atomically, Socrates' philosophies and hypotheses, how, how like those three freaking things. And it's, it's more accidents than it is rhyme scheme. Yeah. But, 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 but it's still, when you're listening to it and it's on, uh, you know, to a 4-4 time, um, it's, it's, it's rhyme. And, and and so so hip hop and ever changing um, process of hip hop has influenced me more than anything. But I will say this: I do have to give credit to this. Gordon Parks' A Choice of Weapons is the book that made me believe that I can do anything I wanted to do. I will put and a link. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Then the um, yeah. Gordon Parks. Gordon Parks, A Choice of Weapons. That is the book that led me to think that I can do anything I want to do. So so that so that we can clarify who Gordon Parks is. Shaft, the movie Shaft. He was the director of Shaft. Parks recreated the um, the A Day in Harlem, the uh, the photo with all of the jazz musicians that were sitting on in Harlem, the black and white. So he wasn't the original um, uh, person who did it, but he re- recreated and got famous. Gordon Parks cre- wrote a orchestra, um, a, a, a symphony. He wrote a symphony while working um, in trains, working on trains. Gordon Parks. He's a photographer. A director, a writer, poet. The, the Gordon, there was Gordon Parks woke up and, and said, "I think I want to do this." The he door did. would open up. Yeah, a door would yeah. open up and allow him to do it. And he did it. So I want to drop that real quick, so that you know, as to where hip hop is the most influential part of 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 my career of of my uh, of the, it's a piece of art. It's a piece of art that has influenced me the most. Gordon Parks gave me the. It was like. If, if, if I was in a sailboat, hip-hop would be the sail, and Gordon Parks would be the wind, pushing me, you know? Thank you so much to my friend Christopher Johnson for his time, not only for the hour today that we spoke to one another, but for the previous time last week that did not record properly because yay, learning and technical difficulties. But without further ado, here is a performance poetry piece by Christopher Johnson written and performed by him called Jealous of Women. Please enjoy. I can almost be jealous of women because men suck. (laughs) Gateway drugs of concrete redwood strutting cowboys and ghetto. Since birth, we are pit bull samurais. Hemingway mojito whiskey sours. We reach in the dark for the nothingness we are taught to feel. We don't cry. Been first step trained to 100 proof burn. Age eight. 
Binding is natural as boys. Twelve, to, to no longer kiss our fathers. To a handshake or as close as we are to come. Unless our team gloriously suppresses an opposing team in conquest. To the opposite sex is an opposing team in pursuit of conquest of our balls. To a romance is a game. The goal is to touch down and home then run. But no matter the sexuality, race, or religion, women. Starshine vertebrae of nighttime, jellyfish sky. Whenever life, lunar eclipse, tomorrows, and hearts race, brush fire fast towards insecurities, there's always someone to talk to, a hand reaching through the dark, a set of arms to fall into without judgment because women are love, deep kisses, velveteen touch moonlight, east coast August, ocean warm insides, and California sunset gazes, women spout wisdom, say, toss me against an oak tree. You find the knowledge of my words infantile compared to the instructions in their silence. Say, I have not seen as many seasons as a mountain. My only hope is to remain as unchanged, although being weathered through time. Women, concrete bones, glass hearts, orchid soft skin, Sunday morning redemption service between bed sheets. I bear witness every time a woman has given me the gift of her, I give back the best I have to offer. So at least the disaster of our meeting is natural as earthquakes, flashes of sky flood kisses that thundercloud roll entangled bodies over the horizon. I've heard to obtain something you have never had, you must do something you have never done. Woman, for you, I wrote this poem sober, abandoned in blood to brotherhood of alpha wolfpack insecurities, of empty whiskey bottles, camouflage, and real men aren't supposed to cry tears for you. Yes. I am rose metal, rose petal, bath water, foot massage, candlelight, and handcuffs, heavy rain plopping over rooftops, skating over backseat steamed up windows, a two-syllable complete sentence followed by a full-letter effort of sinity and a cry for your savior squeezed in a razor silent breath while our hips cry a clap a second coming. You are cousin, auntie, homie, lover, friend. I can almost be jealous of women, but I love them. Yeah.